Welcome to Sunday School Dropouts, the podcast where an ex-Christian and a non-believing sort of Jew read all the way through the Bible for the first time. But we finished the Bible, so now we're talking about stories that seem like they should be in there but simply aren't. My name is Nico Bakulich. I'm Lauren O'Neill. And let's get biblical. Let's get biblical. Real quick, as we always like to say... Uh, This is not a Christian Bible study podcast, and it's not for children. Uh, This episode in particular will have some uh, pretty gross descriptions of battle violence, if that's not your thing. I'm the ex-Christian, I was raised Presbyterian, and I'm now an atheist. And I'm the non-believing sort of Jew. So what is it exactly that we're supposed to talk uh, about and around tonight? Tonight we are talking about and around Flavius Josephus. Okay, let me just Google that really quick Mm -hmm. and bring up the Wikipedia page. Mm -hmm. Just kidding. I did a ton of research, and I'm very good at this. Flava Flavius Josephus. A.K.A. Joey Flavors. Was a... (laughs) I'm glad there's more than one. I'm glad he's Joey Flavors. Uh, He was Jewish historian during Roman times. He was born Yosef ben Matityahu, i.e. Joseph, son of Matthew. Uh, in 37 AD, so a few years after Jesus died. But he ended up going by the name Titus Flavius Josephus. Due to events in his life. (laughs) For reasons we will expound upon. I'm like in the middle of fast facts right now, by the way. Okay. Uh, He wrote two big works of history called The Antiquities of the Jews and The Jewish War, or also called The Wars of the Jews. And in Antiquities... The first half is basically just like summarizing the Bible in order to explain Judaism to the Romans. Uh, The second half is about what happened after the Bible ended, uh, you know, like the Maccabean revolts Mm -hmm. and stuff like that, um, which you can hear more about in our episodes on the Maccabees. And then the Jewish war, his second book, is about the first Jewish-Roman war from 66 to 73 A.D., which Josephus witnessed and participated in. So it's mm. not exactly a history. It's more a uh, reportage. Yeah, it's a it's a memoir. Um, so these books are really long. <laughs> They're like hundreds of pages long. Um, and they have been an extremely valuable source of information about not just historical events, but also Jewish culture and Jewish beliefs during, you know, the turn of the... The the millennial the millennium the, yeah. the two millenniums, uh, for example, in our last episode on the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, we talked about how when the scrolls were first found, it was very easy to figure out that the people who wrote them were Essenes because Josephus had described had, Essenes in such detail. Yeah, um, and of course, this was just one generation after Jesus, so that you know it tells us a lot about what Jesus is. Uh, milieu was like, mm-hmm. um, which is extra coming, interesting. Coming heavy with the French today. <laughs> <I> <laughs> Reportage, like milieu, uh, genre. <laughs> uh, and of course, you know, our society is uh, for some reason organized around Jesus. So right. that's very interesting to us. Um, because those two works uh, are so long and took antiquities and war, we can't really cover them in a podcast episode. But... He also wrote a short little autobiography of himself that's like 30 pages long called The Life of Flavius Josephus. And it's very weird. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, I read it in Josephus, The Complete Works, translated by William Whiston, uh, which is the big famous English translation of Josephus. Is that the same translation that you read? Absolutely. And apparently, at one point in history, in English-speaking households, this translation of the life of Josephus was the second most owned book. Really? After the Bible. That's very interesting. It was like an ultra classic of literature amongst the learned Christians. And it was done in the early 1700s. Mm-hmm. So it's pretty weird that like there hasn't been something to replace it since then. That's true. I guess it's 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 very famous from what I get. So. Although the earliest English translation was in a thousand and something. Yeah, but it was like very bad. Yeah, because apparently, apparently they had like... It was like translating it from Latin, which was badly translated from, from Greek, Greek right. or something like that. Um, anyway. Dude, it's uh, like, I don't know. It's like we've done 
the same research. It's so funny. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, we're like on the totally the same wavelength. Anyway. Uh, because it was written in the 1700s, there are some extremely amazing footnotes. Did you have these when you read it online? Yes. Okay, great. I hope to get the chance to share some of these footnotes with our listeners. Uh, shall we dive in? Absolutely. First things first, Flavius introduces himself, mm -hmm. as any good memoirist has to do, by describing his lineage and his genealogy. <laughs> that was important at the time. It was the style at the time. It simply was. Um, he's a descendant of Aaron. He's yes. a, from the priestly class. Yes. And not just that. But he's from the first of the 24 courses. Yes, the 24 different subsets. He's from the chief family of the first. He doesn't ever use the word Levite right. or Pharisee or Sadducee, uh, but he's pretty high ranking, apparently, yeah. in, on, on the priest scene. Did you look up the courses? Do you know what that means? No. They're, the 24 courses of priesthood was originally a way of like giving shifts of, of labor to all the different priests. Hmm. Like who was in charge of particular duties from some period of the calendar to another, but then gradually I think it morphed into like a, a hierarchical Hierarchy. thing. That makes sense. So he was at the top of that apparently, um, and he says he grew up as a very precocious child. He was well known for being very studious and pious. Of course, this is all in his words, so you know who knows. Um, as we mentioned in our previous episode, at age sixteen, he decided to do a trial run of the three major sects of Judaism at the time the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Essenes. Uh, and he even does like an internship where he lives with an ascetic Essene mm -hmm. named Banis. And he used no other clothing than grew upon trees and had no other food than what grew of its own accord and bathed himself in cold water frequently both by night and by day in order to preserve his chastity. It's, it's interesting because he mentions that he does internships with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Yeah. Those seem to take no time at all. Yeah. He, the timeline doesn't exactly line up because he's like, oh, I did each one for a year, but I spent three years with the Essenes and then I was done. Right. So it's whatever. I he, would also like to point out, we get a little preview of Josephus's literary style here. You see his cat claws come out. His cat claws. For example, when he says... After introducing himself as the from the first of the 24 courses of blah, 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 I'm a rich boy, etc. Thus have I set down the genealogy of my family as I have found it described in the public records. And so bid adieu to those who calumniate me. Mm -hmm. Calumniate? I think calumniate. Uh, so there are those out there who say he ain't worth shit. Mm -hmm. But he's putting it in the but record. But that's calumny, mm -hmm. according to him. Um, so at age 19, he finishes his... Uh, his internship, and uh, joins the Pharisees. Now, in the New Testament, you've probably heard of the Pharisees. Jesus is always fighting with them, even though he's actually closer to them philosophically than he is to the Sadducees or the Essenes. Um, it was kind of the middle class sect. They believed in following both the written Torah and the oral Torah, mm. a.k.a. the Mishnah. According to Josephus, they also believed in a mixture of fate and free will. Um, but from, yeah, from that, that introduction, we get a good idea of Josephus. He's, you know, upper middle class. Mm -hmm. um, he's philosophically kind of middle of the road. Uh, he's interested in finding the intersections between Judaism and Greco-Roman culture, mm -hmm. what is called a Hellenistic Jew. Got it. Got it. Got it. He perhaps frequented the, the gymnasiums that been, they... Yeah, he might have been to a gymnasium or two in his day. Mm -hmm. Hard to say. At age 26, Josephus travels to Rome because the uh, the Roman procurator of Judea, which is just kind of like a vague term that's like a Roman guy who was in charge of stuff. They have a lot of them. Yes. They mean particular things, but they, I don't know what they do. Yeah, it's applied to different positions, the same the same title. So, But then there are tribunes yeah. and legates. Yeah, it's and... confusing. So anyway, some Roman guy had arrested some Jewish priests and sent them to Rome to stand trial. And Josephus wants to go argue in their favor and help them out. So he gets on the boat with them, but the, there's a shipwreck. And the ship sinks in the Adriatic. And he's one of only a few people who survive. He swims all night and he gets saved by another ship. That ship goes to an Italian city called Puteoli, mm -hmm. 
which is also on the coast of Italy. It's uh, south of Rome. And there he meets a Jewish actor named Eliturius. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know what his real name was that was like Romanized into Eliturius. Uh, and the emperor Nero is a big fan of this actor. Uh, through Eliturius, Josephus meets Nero's wife, Popea. And I'm probably pronouncing that wrong. Everybody knows about like Roman history. I don't know anything about Roman history. Okay. I never learned anything about it. I don't know how to pronounce Latin names. I don't know anything. All right, let's start at the beginning. Okay. There were these two little sponges. <laughs> one was named Romulus and one was named Ramus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Harold Ramus and Harold <laughs> Romulus. Rome busters. He gets the arrested priests set free by connecting with his actor and then connecting with Nero's wife. This is what um, he does, okay? He He's a networker. He's a, he is a networker, and he exerts influence. Um, also, good for them for surviving the shipwreck. He says only 80 out of 600 people survive, so... <laughs> I don't know why they would still have to stand trial. Like, wouldn't you just flee? Anyway, uh, he returns home triumphant to Jerusalem, only to discover that, baby, there's a revolution of Bruin. That's right. And the people of Judea would really like to not be colonized by the Romans anymore. So, and the political structure of Judea at the time mm-hmm. is basically like there's a king of the Jews. Yes. Who, uh, yeah, so there's like who's allied, a Jewish ruler. Yeah, who's allied with Rome. Yes. Um, and is kind of like a puppet. Yeah. Well, puppet, some might say. I don't know. You should read Claudius the God by Robert Gray. You will <laughs> learn more about that. I absolutely will never do that. It's really good. I don't care. Um, <laughs> as I do this podcast about Roman history, whatever. Um, Josephus wants everybody to just... Chill the F out, if yeah, I may say so. He wants everybody to like live in peace. Mm-hmm. He wants Jews to be able to practice their religion. He wants to have like autonomy, but he does not want to rebel against Rome. Right. Because um, he knows that... Rome would crush him. Right. Also, he's like a fan of Roman stuff. That's true. Yeah, he's a Hellenistic Jew, and he and he sees that there can be they can like have intersections and they can live side by side. In his view, right. Um, his quote is that uh, the Jews are inferior to the Romans not only in martial skill but also in good fortune, it's which just, is an interesting take. It's not our time right now. Right. Um. People think he's kind of being a traitor mm-hmm. and he has to lie low for a while and hide out with the high priest. And the way he describes it really makes him seem like he's kind of a traitor. Uh, yeah. Uh, elaborate on that. Well, just even in hindsight, in his own telling, uh, as soon as these rebels start to spring up and he hears word about this, he's immediately trying to be like, let's not do this. Mm-hmm. It's actually better that the Romans rule us. Mm-hmm. And I, one thing I do really like, which is just funny to me. In the in this translation, the rebels are all described as innovators. Innovators. Wait, I don't I don't remember that. Okay, innovators. Great. Disruptors. That's right. They're really disrupting the paradigm of Roman rule. Um the procurator or some procurator uh comes and tries to quell the rebellion, but he loses. Um, which sets off anti Semitic violence in neighboring cities like Scythopolis mm-hmm. and Damascus, where Jews are a minority. Right. Um, in the and, neighboring country of Syria. Right. And so Josephus is like, this is bad. This is exactly what I'm trying to avoid. If we start rebelling, we're going to get our people killed. The thing is, like, the region is organized by city. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not like a unified nation the way that we think of it. It's like each city is kind of a different unit. Um, some are more loyal to Rome and some are not. And they will not only disagree with each other, but they'll fight against each other. Yeah, I was so interested. Most of his time in the, the Jewish war of this period uh, is is like fighting other Jews. Yeah, it's like trying to negotiate between different Judean cities yeah. to like not fight with each other. Right. And that's leaving aside the completely the whole rebellion against the Romans. Yeah. Which is like ongoing, but it's kind not of that simmering pressing. in the yeah. background. Yeah. Um after the procurator is defeated, the the like high priests in Jerusalem send Josephus and two other priests 
or like members of the priestly class. I don't know exactly if they have like priestly duties or what they are, whatever. Um, but they are supposed to go out to Galilee mm-hmm. and just try and calm everybody down. Because Galilee is the hotbed of the rebellion. Yes. Um, and so Josephus and these other two guys are legates or legates. Who I guess are like officials dispatched by the Roman government. Um, well, it's are using they like, are a they Roman like... term, but they're not dispatched by the Roman government. Because they're, they're dispatched, dispatched by, by the Judean government. Yeah. By King Agrippa. Or whoever. Yeah. yeah. Um. It's like, I mean, it's the same word as delegate. Mm. So it's just kind of like, these are people who basically have authority right. from the they've top been, brass. They've been depu- they done been deputized. Yeah. And they're just supposed to, they just have a bunch of authority and they can go tell people what to do. Got it. Um, for reference, Galilee is in the northern part of modern day Israel, where the Sea of Galilee is, uh, where Jesus was from. And a oh. uh, <laughs> little guy uh, you may have heard of. You just got all these villages and cities out there. You got Sephoris, okay. Tiberias, mm-hmm. Terakea. Okay. And you don't know what they're up to or what they're going to do to each other. That's right. Let alone vis-a-vis Rome. For example, out in Bethmaeus, mm-hmm. you got this guy, this other guy, Jesus, who you haven't heard of. Dude, there's so many Jesuses in this <laughs> book, and none of them is the famous one. And... He was the leader of a seditious tumult of mariners and poor people. Right. And he's out here. Which sounds like the real Jesus. I know, it kind of does. Yeah. Uh, it's like fishers of men and yeah, stuff. Yeah. Uh, and he's out here plundering and killing Greeks. Uh, mm-hmm. Greeks just meaning Gentiles, anyone who wasn't Jewish. Um, and he's he's plundering and killing them in because if Tiberius. Because the back in the Maccabean days, that was the big deal, was people revolting against the Hellenization of Judea and Israel. Yes. Even though it was coming from the Seleucids, not the Romans at that time. Um, And Josephus is like, dude, stop it. Like, you're just going to start all these fights that are just going to get a bunch of Jews killed. Like they did in Syria. Um, And yeah. And so he tries to get all the stolen stuff returned to its owners. But um, obviously that's controversial, right? (laughs) Um, Then you have this other town, uh, Gishala. And there you got... John, son of Levi. Right. John's and a real piece of work, if you don't mind my he's saying He's so. trying to get Josephus to give him permission to take all the corn that's supposed to be paid to Rome as taxes. Corn. Meaning grain. Yeah. Corn meaning just whatever the cereal crop is. That's thanks to William Whiston in the 1700s. That's how corn was used in English in the 1700s. Um, and Josephus tries to stop him, but John, son of Levi, bribes the other two legates. So Josephus gets outvoted. And then, I hate to tell you this, but John gained vast sums of money by this, his knavery. Uh, John also pulled a, another sweet bit of knavery where under the guise of being a religious man, he said, you cannot sell that Greek oil anywhere around here. No, no. Because it's not fit for our religious ceremonies. When in fact... He was the main purveyor of pure Jewish oil was, in the territory and sold a... it for thrice the price. <laughs> thrice the price. So talk about uh, a talk about a knave. Yeah, Josephus, I guess, has more authority than the other two legates because at some point he dismisses them back to Jerusalem. Um, it, it's implied. It's sort of implied that he's in charge of Galilee. Yeah. He also later on in the book calls himself the governor of Galilee. I'm unclear when that shifts or if that's just another word for right. legate or mm-hmm. whatever. Um, but regardless, he's out there on his own. The other two are sent back. Um, and at this point, he is 30 years old, in which time of life it is a hard thing for anyone to escape the calumnies of the envious. <laughs> Especially where a person has great authority. I think we can all agree with that. That's right. It's tough to be young, gifted, <laughs> successful. My friends in beautiful. their 30s, can't you? We're always dealing with the calumnies of the envious, right? It happens. Um, and so he Not has, to me, but. He has the official authority from the high priest in Jerusalem. He may or may not be the, the governor. Right. Uh, regardless. The problem is there's only so much he can do when there's a huge faction of people who want to rebel. So he has some military force on his side because he has soldiers from the cities that are like loyal to Rome and loyal to his cause. Yeah. And as many mercenaries as he can buy. 
in this book, he's constantly buying off one gang with, you know, some spare silver, with some, some corn, spare... Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but just to fight another gang. Yes. Um, but there's yeah. So there's also gangs on the other side and they're like they seem pretty much equally matched. Right. They're constantly in skirmishes against each other. Um, there's one doesn't seem particularly stronger than the other. And his position is very precarious. So for the next several years, he's just constantly going back and forth between cities, fighting against these rebel leaders like John and Jesus, not that John and Jesus. But he, John and Jesus, have a real back and forth relationship for for what seems like 15 or 20 years. (laughs) Like they're constantly catching each other in in traps and then letting each other go yes and then almost by the skin of their teeth avoiding assassination back and forth back and forth back and forth so so, yeah whenever he captures them he has mercy on them and lets them go because he's such a generous guy whenever they capture him he uses his clever wiles to escape at the last minute he's a fast talker and he can talk his way out of any situation um and according to him he's always being very upright and logical he doesn't take bribes he just wants what's best for everyone he pays out of his own pocket when people have redress with him or his army um while his enemies are very corrupt and they're just trying to like use revolution to enrich themselves right even though it's going to get a bunch of people killed um most of the rest of the book is just various permutations of that and so uh instead of going through a precise timeline of all that, which would be very long and boring. We're just going to go over some of the highlights. Um, my first highlight, I personally really liked when Josephus gave John permission to make use of the hot baths of Tiberius for the recovery of the health of his body. Uh, but then John just convinced everyone in Tiberius that Josephus was a Rome-loving motherfucker, and they they revolted against him. What are some highlights for you? Um Josephus gets into an argument with Jesus mm-hmm. because at one point they're not like, well, not working together. Uh, Josephus is trying to turn the people of Jesus's uh, city against him. Terakea, I think. Yeah, something like that. Jesus specifically wants to forcibly circumcise all the refugees mm. that are spilling into the town from, mm. from the war. I mean, who wouldn't? Right. And he's like, you know, we can't give these people shelter and live among the Jews if we don't circumcise them. That's what the the Bible says, essentially. Uh, But Josephus is against it. He's Mm -hmm. against forcibly circumcising the refugees, and he says, look, our job is to give them... Another intactivist hero. ...is to give them hospitality and feed them like we would our own and not tell them how to do their religion. That's what this whole thing is about. And let me tell you, William Whiston loved that in the footnotes. (laughs) Yeah, he went off about it. But but it's a very interesting uh, bit of character work. That's true. Yeah. He's very interested in characterizing himself. Right, mm-hmm. He has a very particular image that he wants to get across in this little autobiography. Um, I also like when Jesus convinces everyone that he's a traitor um, and a mob comes to get him while he's sleeping. And his bodyguard wakes him up and begs him to let him kill him so that he can die an honorable death right. and, and not, not be like tortured to yeah. death. Um, but instead, Josephus put on a black garment, hung his sword at his neck, and uh, took an alternate route to the local hippodrome, where where the unarmed members of the mob are waiting, I guess. And he, like, steps out of the shadows and, and falls flat on the earth and starts crying. It says he bedewed the ground with his tears. Mm-hmm. And he's like... You think I stole this money, but actually I was just taking that money to build walls around Terakea to protect it. And everyone's like, walls? We love walls. This rules. And so then the mob is on his side. But when he gets home, the leaders of the mob, the armed ones, come back to kill him. And he's like, listen, just send a delegate in here to get some wall money. And then they send a delegate in and he whips him and cuts off his hand and hangs his hand around his neck and sends him back out. And then everyone runs away. Yeah, he blows hot and cold. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? There's a lot of behanding yeah. in this book. There's a lot of times when the mob comes to him and is like, please, let us kill John. He's such a piece of shit. Mm-hmm. He's always trying to kill you. He's stirring up trouble left and right. But please equally... just let him tear us apart. <laughs> and Josephus has to say, no, I have a way to solve this without violence. But equally... 
there's the same number of times when one of his enemies stirs up the mob against him and they're calling for his death. Um, I I particularly liked, speaking of uh, being asleep, uh, at one point, Josephus is lured to a fake parlay with one of his opponents. Oh, yes. I don't remember which one. And upon arriving at the fake parlay, Josephus knows that it's that it's a trap. Yeah. And so instead of going into the city, which he's supposed to do with just like two bodyguards or whatever, he stays in an inn just outside the city and then pretends to be asleep. Uh-huh. This somehow induces the leaders of the trap to come out of the city and start like speechifying to the crowd, mm-hmm. whipping them up against Josephus. There's a lot of speechifying. Yeah, that is the main method of expressing power in this yes, occasionally that's... people stab each other or whatever <laughs> occasionally somebody gets their hand cut off but it's mainly speechifying mainly speechifying anyway once he's lured them out of the city and they have taken part in the kind of battle that he can engage in he a battle of wits that's right and yeah once he challenges him in the marketplace of ideas <laughs> then josephus gets up and out speechifies them and has them run for the hills and once again tells the crowd don't chase them don't kill them you know, we have to keep this elaborate game of cat and mouse yes. going for several more years. Um, I believe that's the one. Does that one start off with the with the letter and the messenger? Yes. OK, so, yeah, Jonathan is the enemy and he sends him a letter that's like, hey, let's meet up and like talk out our differences, which right. is which is actually a trap. Um, but the bizarre part is like the messenger comes to deliver it to Josephus while he's a. Uh, quote, feasting with my friends and the principal of the Galileans. Mm-hmm. And the messenger's super rude. Right. And he's like, um, could you like hurry up and answer this? Cause I have to get back to them. And all of the people at the feast are like, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and so then Josephus like takes the letter, but he like pretends like he's too distracted to read it. And he like stalled for several hours. And then he's like, okay guys, party's over. And he like sends everybody home except for his like close inner circle and then he's like hey messenger come drink with us and the messenger's like uh no thanks and he's like i'll give you a drachma for every glass of wine that you drink and the messenger's like well (laughs) okay (laughs) and then obviously gets really drunk and uh reveals that it's just a trap and then and that's how you can use manners to solve all your problems Mm -hmm. is because that led him into brilliantly pretending to fall asleep and in then... an inn like that that's so crazy to me because that story is obviously him falling Just... asleep <laughs> and being like i pretended to fall asleep right you didn't pretend to fall asleep and then the crowd was like oh josephus you're so handsome <laughs> um i also like um i think this actually was in the circumcision part that people were saying that the the gentiles living among them were wizards uh, and Josephus, quote, laughed at the allegation about witchcraft and told them that the Romans would not maintain so many 10,000 soldiers if they could overcome their enemies by wizards, which... Fair. fair yeah, fair. fair point. However, the footnote to this from William Whiston in the 1730s says, <clears throat> Here we may observe the vulgar Jewish notion of witchcraft, but that our Josephus was too wise to give any countenance to it. Ah, Mm -hmm. the classic anti-Semitic Jewish scholar. Yes. Also, uh, my other favorite footnotes are that they're like, obviously Josephus was a follower of John the Baptist. (laughs) And I'm like, clearly Josephus had been an Ebionite Christian for many years at this point. (laughs) I'm Uh like, okay, cool. Makes sense. Makes sense. Um, One of the ways that his opponents keep tricking him is because he's a good religious guy and loves the Lord. Mm-hmm. So every time somebody suggests like, Hey, let's have a fast for tomorrow's Sabbath mm-hmm. as a priest, he has to be like, dude, great idea. Mm-hmm. When he knows, in fact, that means that like his bodyguards can't carry weapons. In a fast. Yeah. And he can't carry weapons on the Sabbath. Right. Huge disadvantage. Right. And many other tricks like that. Um, speaking of the Romans. Yes. Which you were. Uh huh. I thought it was hilarious that this whole life of Josephus thing was like the the Jewish war involved no Roman soldiers at all until like the very, very, very end. Yeah, that's true. Which makes sense because it takes a while to march from wherever you are or like take a boat or whatever. And I guess the idea is just like 
all of the people fighting in this in Josephus's world mm-hmm. are like irregulars, you know? They're just like a gang from here or like yeah. kids from the city. They're just in this kind of like random corner of the empire that nobody else really cares about. Right. Uh, and then they're just waiting until the time when like 10,000 trained Roman soldiers show up. Are going to come and, and crush them. Yeah. <laughs> do whatever. So it's like there's all of this drama and this power struggle and whatever is playing out with the idea that, you know, the freaking Imperial Star Destroyer is just going to show up at some point and make it all moot, which is very it's it's very odd. At one point, a man named Cletus is uh, leading a revolt in Tiberius. The text does not state whether he was a slack-jawed yokel. We can only assume. And Josephus, like, sails some ships over um, the Sea of Galilee to Tiberius, but he he wants to make it seem like he's the Roman army so that they will stop the revolt because they fear they're going to get crushed. Um, and so he, like, puts the anchors down kind of far away. That's right. But then he just takes a little boat out to, like, shout at them. Um, Before that... He had convinced all of the rich people from Tiberius to decamp with him, get out of town, because Cletus was, like, coming for the rich people's heads. And what Josephus did was get them to each hire a ship for, e- for each family. Yes. So that it looked like they had a gigantic fleet yes. of uh, and a huge army. And actually, there's, like, hardly anyone on the ships. Right. So they have to—they anchor them kind of far away, and then he goes closer. And it works. They surrender because they think they're about to get— their shit fucked up. Josephus orders one of his guards to like go in and cut off one of Cletus's hands because mm-hmm. that's the appropriate punishment or whatever. But the guard is like, I don't want to go out there alone. If they figure it out, they're going to kill me. Um, and so instead, Josephus like yells from his boat and he's like, okay, like your punishment is we're going to come out and cut off both your hands. Mm-hmm. But if you want to save us the trouble... And cut off one of your own hands, we'll let you only lose one hand. And he does it. He cuts off his own left hand. He got frickin' Chris Angel mind freak. Right <laughs> 100% the very first historical mind freaking. Um, what are some other highlights? Uh, oh, I really liked where in the middle of the chronological story, he just is like, excuse me, uh, I have something I need to say. And then he goes on a two-page rant about his enemy, Justus. Oh, yeah. He hates this guy. Uh, who apparently wrote his own account of the events in the story. And he's like, you were already causing trouble before I even became governor of Galilee. And you were burning villages in Syria, turning the Gentiles against the Jews, convincing them to rebel against Rome, even though they're obviously going to lose. And did you notice how I never put anybody to death? I was just like cutting off hands. Meanwhile, you were killing people left and right. And if your story is so true, why didn't you write it until years later when the people involved were dead? Whereas I wrote The Jewish War and showed it to the emperor himself because I was so confident in it. And also, it portrayed the emperor as a really great guy. And obviously, he would like it. But whatever. I showed it to him, and that's the truth. And included in there, he throws in a couple of reviews of his book that (laughs) that he got from, like, King Agrippa and other people. Mm -hmm. And it's like, quote in the text, Mm -hmm. King Agrippa to Josephus, his dear friend, sendeth greeting. I have read over thy book with great pleasure, and it appears that thou hast done it much more accurately and with greater care than have the other writers. Send me the rest of these books. Farewell, my dear friend. And he's like, would King Agrippa have written that if your book were so much better? Mm -hmm. I also like when he gets thrown from his horse into a quagmire and bruises his wrist and gets a fever. I think that displays... A great medical knowledge. <laughs> well, I mean, it, they're, they're separate things. You get a you get a fever from the swamp. Oh, okay. <laughs> swamp fever. Swamp fever. Quag fever. So then, finally, near the end of the book, the Roman army actually arrives uh, to intervene, led by Vespasian, and uh, we'll get into that after a quick break. You're going to hear some music, and we'll be back in about a minute to talk more about the life. A Flavius Josephus.
Welcome back to Sunday School Dropouts. I'm Lauren. And I am Nico. And we're talking about the life Bless ye. of Flavius Josephus. When we left off, Josephus was just going back and forth with his enemies. Um, you know, the bad guys were riling up the crowd. Yeah. And then they were about to kill Josephus. But then... Does it seem like he did any good? I mean, like, <laughs> whenever he got an opportunity to, he was merciful and he tried to solve things with nonviolence. According to him, yes. However, it seems like it seems like it would have been more effective to just kill some of these motherfuckers. Yeah, because like they seemed to run amok for a long yeah. time, and they would just recapture the cities as soon as he left. That's what seemed to happen. The, the, and he ended up having like a bunch of pitched battles, anyways, with like thousands of dudes fighting each other. The one thing he did that I think you could argue was good was he fortified a lot of the cities that he was in charge of. That's true. That was the whole point, like to to slow down the Romans, right? Yes, and he built walls around them. And speaking of the Romans, guess what? They're here. Oh, shit. They arrived. Fuck. And, uh, you know, even though Josephus has been trying to get people to stop rebelling against them, <laughs> he's a Judean official. And he's here to defend. By this point, he's like officially the military governor of Galilee. Or whatever that something. means. something, yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's in charge of Galilee. Yeah. And he's in charge of defending it against the Roman army. And that's why he's built these walls around several cities. Um, and he... Starts fighting battles against Rome, and he eventually takes a stand against Vespasian. Right. Am I saying that even remotely correctly? Yeah, that's great. Vespasian? Vespasian? Vesp Let's do Vespasian. Vespasian? Vespasian. Yeah. So anyway, that guy who is the leader of the Roman Bjorks army. Vespertine? I don't even know what his rank is. Is he a general? Is he a, a command? I don't know what military ranks are or what Roman history is. But... He's in charge of stuff, and Josephus is going to fight against him at a town called Jotapata, mm -hmm. or Yodfat in Hebrew. That makes more sense. I was going to say, what the hell kind of name was that? Yeah. You know, it's funny because, like, okay, so his name is Yosef, mm -hmm. right? And then he changes it to Yosippos, which mm -hmm. is like the Greek-Latin version. And then we call him Josephus, which is like <laughs> two degrees removed. Anyway... Um, at this point in the text, in the life of Flavius Josephus, he's like, and we all know what happened to Joe Tapata because I wrote about it in the Jewish War. Right. So let's hop over to the Jewish War. A thousand page a book that we've all certainly cracked. Yes. Now, my idea of ancient battles is like um, they're the same length as uh, a scene in Lord of the Rings. Sure. Right? They're, they're like your brave hearts. Most of an episode of Game of Thrones. Got it. Yeah. yeah. Um, but and that's an, that's one that's important <laughs> to the plot. Obviously, that's not how it really was. Obviously, when when a siege is happening on a city, kind of the point is it lasts for a really long time, usually. And you're trying to starve them out. Right. That's like a big tactic. Battles are either very slow or very fast. Yeah. And there's nothing in between. So the siege of Jotapata took 47 days. And the Jews fight very valiantly. At one point, they they bluff like they have a water supply because that's what the Romans are counting on. Mm -hmm. And so they bluff like they have a water supply by getting cloth wet in like the little water that they have left and wringing it out over the walls. And pretending like, look, we have so much water, we can just waste That's a classic it. Josephus move. Yeah, right isn't it? At some point, a, a really strong Jewish soldier throws a rock down onto their battering ram, <laughs> destroys it, and they need a new battering ram or whatever. Um, but in the end, uh, the Romans breach the walls and kill everyone or take them as slaves and destroy the city and so on and so forth. Uh, Josephus. Nearly everyone. Yes, nearly everyone. Not a hundred percent of people, because Josephus jumps into a little uh, a little cave pit to hide. The kind that you would have in any village or city. There's a look. We've established with the Dead Sea Scrolls <laughs> that there's a lot of caves in the region. That's true. They probably kept warm by wrapping themselves in ancient scrolls. <laughs> um, and when he jumps down into this pit, he discovers that there are some other people who have already done the same mm -hmm. thing. Uh, and he describes them as persons of eminence. Got it. So these are not just like random peasants that were in the city. They're they're people of some political or military importance. Yeah, this is an Iron Age panic room. And they have enough provisions to last a few days. So he hides down there. And then at night, he goes up and searches for a way to escape the city 
but the Romans are guarding all the exits, specifically looking for him mm -hmm. because he's the Because he's so smart and charismatic and handsome. Yeah, frankly. On the third night, the Romans find him and they're like, come up out of your pit. We don't want to kill you. You're so handsome. <laughs> And we admire Vespasian your... just really wants to meet you. Yeah. Is what they say. Yeah. They say we like we admire your brave fighting techniques. The water thing was brilliant. Mm -hmm. Chef's kiss. And uh the other people in the pit are like, fuck no. They're like, bro, you're not leaving us to die yeah. in here. <laughs> if you go over to the Romans, you're a traitor. Your your obligation is to die down here. Mm -hmm. Uh you need to kill yourself. And if you try to go up there, we will kill you. Echoing another famous siege that the Jews lost. What's that? Masada. Yes. Masada has not happened yet. True. But. It's same... echoing because I heard about it before I heard about this. One. Yes. <laughs> but. echoes in my mind. There's something that happened at Masada that also happens here because it was a custom. So first, Josephus, obviously he's a fast talker. Um, he he writes that he began to talk like a philosopher to them. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, God... He's like, I know what's going to blow with these people away. God wants me to be an ambassador to the Romans. And suicide is a sin. And, you know, if you think about it, it really is actually like blah, 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 blah. And um, <laughs> We've all read the Odyssey. You know, yeah. it's all that <laughs> and he has, a, he has all these stupid little loopholes that he's trying to get through. And they do not buy it at all. And so he's like, okay, let's do the lots thing. And this is also something that happened at Masada. I guess it was a common practice at the time. I don't know if it was just the Jews who were doing it or if it was common in other places too, but they would draw lots to kill each other so that they wouldn't be taken alive by the enemy. So they would all like write their name on a little rock or like shard of pottery. And then uh, they would like whatever, put them in a bag and draw them out. And the first name drawn would be the first to die and he would be killed by the second name drawn. And it would just go on and on so that every successive name drawn would kill the next person. Um, and apparently, according to Josephus, he just conveniently happened to be in the last two names. Because when you get to the last two, then it's kind of, you got to kind of kill yourselves, right? Right. Or you can kind of try to kill it. Somebody's got to kill themselves, which is a sin. And yeah. that's the whole that's thing the is whole point. constructed to avoid the sin of killing yourself. Uh, and so when we get down to these last two guys, Josephus is able to persuade the one remaining guy, fuck it, let's give ourselves up. Can you imagine watching like 38 people kill each other? I know. Apparently this, this was like this a, a common thing at the time. I mean, Josephus is nothing if not a survivor. There was the shipwreck. I know. Numerous times when all of his bodyguards died and he escaped. The bruised wrist and the swamp fever. Baby, that quagmire is going to get you someday. And uh, so he climbs out of the pit and is taken alive by the Romans. And they take him to Vespasian. And he's like, okay, hear me out. <laughs> that That's like his catchphrase. Listen, yeah. hear me out. He's like, you think I'm just a captive. But actually, I have a message that was sent to me in a dream by God that you're going to become emperor and your son Titus is going to become emperor after you. Now, apparently, at this time, that had never happened before. A Roman emperor had never been succeeded by his natural son. Think about it. I have no idea about Roman history. I just read this, <laughs> but I think it's true. Um, and so, of course, Vespasian thinks that, you know, Josephus is trying to butter him up and not get executed. But then he Vespasian says, like, well, you know, if God speaks to you in dreams, then how come you didn't foresee that you would lose this battle? Right. And Josephus is like, actually, I did foresee it. And I said we'd be defeated on the 47th day and that I would be taken alive. And you can ask any of your other captives. And then they go and ask the other captives. And it's true. According to Josephus in his own book that he's writing right now. Right. So they don't kill Josephus. I mean, that's true. <laughs> that's evident that they didn't kill him. They right. kept him as a captive alive uh, in, in good conditions. Um, and a couple years later. It's funny, though, because his main skill is bullshitting and talking himself out of, way, out of crazy scenarios. Mm -hmm. But then we're supposed to believe that he also just this once like had a really good prophecy and told mm -hmm. everyone. <laughs> 
He's oh, like, no one, no one else who survived that like actually knew the truth. It's, it's just a coincidence, though. I actually did have a really good prophecy that one. Yeah, time. <laughs> it was like all the other times I was. All the other times I just came up with a brilliant way to talk myself out of the situation. But this one time, right. when I was brilliantly talking myself out of the situation, it was a prophecy from God. Um, so then a couple years later, in sixty nine A.D., good, splendid. The emperor Nero dies, and then you have the year of four emperors. That's right. Uh, where three schmucks try and fail to become emperor. Yep. And then in the end, Vespasian takes the throne. Yeah. Again, so, you can read about it. Claudius the God. Josephus's prophecy has come true. And now he's the big little boy. He, They, you know, they... Big boy season. Yeah. They cut his... They make a big show of cutting his shackles off and freeing him from captivity. And he's, you know, he's like the court favorite. Um, and... He takes the name Flavius. Right. Which is actually the one of the patronymics or something of, of, of Vespasian. Vespasian. Yeah, he's Flavius Vespasian. Yeah. Um, and so now we have Flavius Josephus. Apparently this was a Roman custom. Yeah. All those. Uh, he, and he gets adopted into the house. Yes. Uh, all of those dudes had like seven names. Yes. That were mostly like patronymics. Yeah. So now, you know, the war between the Jews and the Romans is in full swing. And Josephus is chilling with the Romans and he's not being held captive. He's choosing to stay with them because he's got a very cushy gig. He's in an apartment in Vespasian's like palace. Nice, nice. Um, two one. Has even two two. <laughs> it's a true two bedroom. Oh. <laughs> he even, you know, takes the name Flavius. Um Vespasian gives him a captured Jewish woman to marry. That's right. Um, whom he later divorces like, a couple years later because as a member of the priestly class, he's not allowed to marry war captives. He I, remembers three well, years later. I think he's kind of like, uh, Vespasian, I can't really, I'm not allowed. And Vespasian's like, no, here you go, brother. And he's just like, uh, okay, cool. Uh, thanks. Uh, and so then he divorces her and marries a Jewish woman from Alexandria, mm -hmm. which uh, we know from previous episodes has a large Jewish population. One of the Jewish centers of the world at that point. And then uh, in 70 AD, Titus, Vespasian's son, is uh, going to lead a siege on Jerusalem. And Josephus goes with him. And they send Josephus out ahead of time to speak to the Jews in Aramaic and convince them to surrender. And he's basically like, you guys, God has done this before. He makes other nations conquer us, but then we come out ahead in the end. Do you remember getting out of slavery in Egypt? Do you remember the Babylonian exile? Just wait it out. You do not have to fight this war, and God will eventually put us back in charge of our land. And they just, of course, like pelt him with rocks and yeah. laugh at him. Yeah. By the way, Nico has not read this because it involved reading like 100 extra pages, and I just... Did it on my own real quick. That's right. She bought the deluxe edition. The complete works of Josephus. And it's like, honestly, as long as the Bible. Yeah. But anyway, she got the bonus day one DLC. My mom won't let me buy DLC. Siege of Jerusalem DLC. Yeah. So it starts. The siege starts. And of course, it is extremely horrible. Like all these sieges, like we talked about with Joe Tapata. Uh, this one takes four months uh, so people are dying of hunger and thirst. Mm -hmm. If the Romans catch people trying to sneak out to get food, they grab them, torture them, and then, of course, crucify them right. in full view of the city gates. Uh, people are resorting to cannibalism, supposedly, inside, which is not out of the realm of possibility, considering we've seen that multiple times in the Bible. Mm -hmm. According to Josephus, most of the citizens of Jerusalem want to surrender, but the ringleaders of the revolt won't let them. The most fucked up part is that the people who do try to desert are killed by the Arabian and Syrian forces who are helping out the Romans mm -hmm. um, because it was common for people to, if you were like fleeing a besieged city, you would swallow any gold that you had. Mm -hmm. Because you couldn't carry anything, and anything you were carrying would be taken from you. 
So you swallow the gold and then you shit it out later and then you have some wealth wherever you are. So the people trying to desert from Jerusalem are killed by the Arabian and Syrian forces and then they just rip open their guts to search for any gold pieces that might be there. Um, according to Josephus, when Titus finds out about this, he reprimands them and forbids them from doing that. Um, but they keep doing it. And um, also, according to Josephus, Titus keeps giving the Jews multiple chances to surrender, but they won't. So four months pass. Everything is terrible. The violence is indescribable. And then the Romans breach the gates and take the city and kill thousands and thousands of people. The siege started a few days after Passover. Mm -hmm. So there's extra people in the city because everybody makes a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for Passover to make sacrifices at the temple. So there's way, way, way more people to kill and enslave. Um, and they represent like a very large percentage of Jews in the entire region. So it's just on top of everything else, it's a huge demographic blow. Mm -hmm. It's just killing a huge percentage of people. Um, and of course, they destroy the temple. The temple was destroyed once by Babylon and then it was rebuilt and then it was destroyed a second time by Rome. And this is that. And it's never rebuilt. They set it on fire. Um, you know, uh, Josephus says like, Titus just wanted to set the gates on fire. He didn't want to burn the whole thing down, but then the fire spread. Um, and the Romans absolutely desecrate the temple by, once they've taken everything, they make sacrifices to Titus there, which is totally standard for Romans and not supposed to be particularly sacrilegious, but like to the Jews, it's obviously like the extremely the, the worst possible yeah. thing. And of course, they take all the the holy artifacts from the temple, you know, the the menorahs and all the whatever, and they like bring them back to Rome to parade around in victory. Um, and it's it's like the end, right? Yeah. It, a few years later, they would put down the last of the rebellions, and the first Jewish Roman War was over. And Josephus is on the Roman side for all of this, getting you know he's getting patronized. Well, he was certainly fighting Jews for the first, like, nine-tenths of it, and then he was on the Roman side for <laughs> well, the last bit of it. he was on the side of Jews fighting other Jews for the first nine-tenths of it. Yeah. But now he's really just not on the right side. Right. Uh, he writes, When the city Jerusalem was taken by force, Titus Caesar persuaded me frequently to take whatsoever I would out of the ruins of my country, and so that he gave me leave to do so. But when my country was destroyed, I thought nothing else to be of any value, which I could take and keep as a comfort under my calamities. So I made this request to Titus that my family might have their liberty. Yeah. I had also the holy books by Titus's concession. Yeah. So apparently he got the he got the big some sort of holy books, like the the Torah from the yeah, temple or something. Torah from the temple. Um, hard to hard to say exactly what it is, but he he also gets uh, a couple hundred people freed. Right. So that's you know. I guess pretty much everyone that he knows personally. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess he knew a lot of people because he is a networker and was in a position of authority. He was in a position to meet lots of different people all the time. But like when you think about an ancient person, their network is not that big. So the, like the amount of people that he's getting free is like pretty much just like everyone he knows personally. Yeah. And their families. And he actually, whenever he sees someone he knows hanging up on a cross... Because that was how the Romans killed people. He can go to Titus and ask to have that person let down. And he says that happens three times. Two of the people die anyway, but one person recovers and survives from being crucified. Uh, Josephus is made a Roman citizen. He gets an annual pension. He has one son with his wife and then divorces her because he was like, what, I didn't write down the exact wording, but he's like, I was not satisfied with her behavior. That's right. He was not pleased with her behavior. <laughs> and then he marries another Jewish woman, this time in Crete, and has two more sons. Eventually, Vespasian dies and his son, Titus, takes over. And then Josephus becomes Titus Flavius Josephus. That's his full name from Joseph ben Matityahu. Um, and Titus continues to favor him. 
And Josephus goes on to write, among a few other things, these two big books, The Antiquities of the Jews and the Jewish War. And his agenda is kind of like, and he's writing to the Hellenistic audience, and he's trying to prove that Judaism has a long and venerable history that actually goes back further than the ancient Greeks. Right. We're not some backwater tribe. We're actually like the most ancient civilization that you know. And we have culture. We have philosophy just as much as any Greeks or Romans. Um, and in fact, there's no reason that Jews can't coexist peacefully with other people. That's not like an inherent problem with Judaism, these rebellions. It's just a few bad apples. Right. Um, and, you know, was he was he trying to redeem himself because he felt guilty as he was on the like wrong side of the war watching the temple burn, like right. the most holy thing possible, just burning down? Uh, who can say? With that being said, should we rate the book? Should we rate this fellow's life? I think we should rate this fellow's life. How would you rate this book? I think I'm going to give it like 18 out of 24 innovators. And what would be your reasoning? I think it's a pretty fascinating historical document. Now... It's like one of the most fascinating historical documents that exists, honestly. Now, reading it front to back, you know, in in the context of like doing it on your own, Uh you know, it's not... A, it's not a heart pounder. <laughs> it's okay? not a, yeah, it's not, it's a, not a pulse riser. You're not on the edge of your seat. No, it's not a foot tingler. You know what I'm saying? My foot my foot didn't tingle once. However, it has everything in it. Spills, thrills, and chills. Um, and by that, I mean it's very interesting to get more historic, like the most historical idea essentially possible because like the idea of history back then didn't really match our idea of history. Yeah. But... Uh, of this early AD period, um, especially from somebody who was in such a unique position. Yeah. That like seemed to straddle. The most unique possible position. Seemed like was raised as a as a Jewish priest, but ended up like being a citizen of Rome, you know, and knew two emperors and fought on both sides of this, of the rebellion and stuff like that. Like, wh- that's an insane character. Yeah. And, uh, this famous translation is really good. I mean, I, I don't know how good it is in terms of fidelity to, fidelity the, original. to the original source. I, I can't judge that. I don't have the skills to pay those bills. But as a piece of writing, it's it's really good. I think. And I think I've justified myself enough. What do you what do you think? How would you rate it? I'm gonna give it six out of seven severed hands oh no because man it's really interesting like the the text itself is kind of annoying it's very obviously like written to make himself look good right um in a in a very transparent and not charming way i may have found it more charming before trump was elected but now everything that's like remotely braggadocious seems just repellent right um but it's just like i mean imagine imagine being in that position right it's just such a an insane thing you know he's watching his country be destroyed he's like i don't want any plunder right this is my country it's like i don't want a menorah yeah like my people are dispersed and you destroy the temple yeah yeah and killed thousands of my people thousands and thousands and on one level, he seems like a fucking traitor. <laughs> like, um, on another level, he wrote these books to defend Judaism, mm-hmm. and it just seems like a really, really complex emotion, one that would be very hard to replicate in the modern world, and it's very interesting to think about. Um, and then, of course, on top of that. It's just like such a treasure trove of historical information. Sure. So that is the end of the episode. Um, we need to announce real quick that we have to switch to a monthly schedule. Uh, we're sorry, but we just can't. Uh, we have stuff going on. Yeah. And, stupidly, uh, we filled our life up with stuff. And now it's difficult for us to make a show every two weeks. Yeah. 
but we're still here and we still love you. It's not because we don't enjoy it. It's not because we don't enjoy spending time with you. It's just that I haven't slept in three weeks and I'm going to die. But before she dies, we got to crack the mailbag, baby. Listener Elliot wrote in to say he likes the podcast. Thanks, Elliot. We like you too. We got a letter from a website called A Book of Creatures that publishes mythological creatures every Monday and Friday. And, uh, of course, they wrote in about our Beast of the Bible episode and alerted us to the existence of the Myrmicoleon, a lion-ant hybrid created by a translation error, as well as the Yadua, a strange little evil man made out of plants with an umbilical cord connecting it to the earth, and you have to cut the cord to kill it, and also probably created by a spelling error. Our listener Josh wrote in to request a blessing for daughter Ruby. We wish Ruby all the best in the world, but we do not have the authority to bless or curse babies. We're not God. They're humans. <laughs> we can't. We we just, we're not in that we realm. We don't have the dominion over humans or apes. Yeah. Anything else, we'll curse or bless. Snails, monkeys, whatever. Yeah, monkeys are fine. Apes, hard no. Apes are a no-go. Uh our listener, Oded, wrote in again. Hi, Oded. Hi, Oded. He asked for an episode on the concept of the Son of God, which was not exclusive to early Christianity. We actually have already talked about that um, in some of our episodes on the apocryphal books of the New Testament. I don't 100% remember which ones. But anyone interested in that topic should read the book How Jesus Became God by Bart Ehrman which talks about this in depth, and it's really fascinating. Our listener Andrew wrote in and asked if there really is such a thing as peanut butter whiskey. The simple answer is yes. It is, and it's delicious. You wouldn't think it would be, but it is. The brand name is Screwball, with a K. Uh, like Nico. It seems like it wouldn't work, but it simply does. Andrew also sent us a cat to curse, named ironically Angel. Isn't that funny? So, um... Unless you throw down your arms, I will burn your houses and expose your goods to public sale. Wow, watch Angel. out. Watch out. <laughs> it's a cat. Uh, listener Rohan sent us a dog to bless. It actually looks eerily like my grandpa's dog, which is weird because my grandpa's dog is a weird mutt that we found on the street. And we don't know what he's a mix of, which is actually saying something because... My mom bred and showed dogs for many years, and as a family, we can almost always identify what type of breeds a mutt is. We have no idea on my grandpa's dog, whose name is Monty, and looks very similar to Ryoga. This is a very adorable dog. Here is a blessing for him. Leave off to afflict thy soul and put away all fear, for what now grieves thee will render thee very considerable, and in all respects most happy. For thou shalt get over not only these difficulties, but many others, with great success." Sorry, I blacked out for a minute while you were talking about dogs. <laughs> um, if you want to be a friend to us in the same way that dog is a friend to man mm-hmm. and ape. Um, Not ape. You can leave us a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. You can be a wonderful person like someone named Sweet Orb Mace. You know. I wonder if it's Sweet Orb Mace or like Sweet Orb Mace. I don't know. Anyway, they said, filling all the holes in my sketchy Bible knowledge, rating nine out of nine cursed cat lives. Thank you, sweet orb mace. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we're at SunSchoolDrop. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Nico Bakulich, N-I-K-O-B-A-K-U-L-I-C-A. And I'm Lauren E. O'Neill, O'Neill spelled with an A like, uh, did anything start with an A? Agrippa, like Agrippa. One of my favorites. Uh, if you want to email us a cat or dog or any of the wonderful creatures under God's green eye. Not humans. Those are much too, those are beyond our pay grade. Humans right. are real and we love them and we cannot bless or curse them. That's right. Or apes. Um, you can apes. email us at contact at sundayschooldropouts.lol. Uh, if you want to like pre-order my anthology that I co-edited called Empty the Pews, which you'll really like. If you like the show, go to emptythepews.com. I have a new uh, album coming out. It's an EP. It's called OK 101. It should be out by the time this episode drops. So look on Spotify. 
look on iTunes. You can check out my website, NicoBakulich.com. You already know how to spell it. N-I-K-O-B-A-K-U-L-I-C-A. Dot com. <laughs> um, it's music that I made with my band back in San Francisco. If you like the music on this show, you might like this. It's a little different, but I think I think it's got a little bit of that Nico flavor. So and I wrote some of the lyrics. So she did? It's good. At, uh, she vouches for those. Mm-hmm. None of the other ones. The other ones are crap. No, they're not. They're really good. I'm just kidding. Anyway, yeah, check out my check out my new music. Um, we will be back in a month. Uh, it sounds weird to say, but it'll still be a Sunday. We'll see you on some Sunday in the future. Any given Sunday, a specific oh, given Sunday. Any specific given Sunday. Correct. Love you very much. Stay Christian. No wait. <laughs> Stay whatever you are. We're not. uh, It's not our business. Okay. Goodbye.